I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. To continue our theme of Summer on the Riviera, we are revisiting one of the Gilded Gentleman's classic episodes just to give you even more to the story. So perhaps enjoy a glass of absinthe or champagne. Put on your sunglasses for a trip back to Monaco. Many people today think that Grace Kelly, the glamorous Hollywood icon of the early 1950s, became the first American princess of Monaco when she married the dashing Prince Regnier III in the 1956 wedding that captured the attention of the world. But such is not the case. Princess Grace had a predecessor, American-born Alice Heine, who wed the then Prince of Monaco, Albert I, nearly 70 years before Grace ever set foot on the Rock of Monaco. Well, just who was this first American princess, and what lasting effect did she have on the principality? And just what were some of the striking and curious similarities between her and her royal sister, Grace? Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And as I do every two weeks, I'm joining you for a look into all the corners, light and dark, of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and the world of late Victorian and Edwardian London. And as I do, I'm joining you at tea time, my favorite time of day. I've just poured myself a cup of Earl Grey tea which is really my favorite afternoon tea. And as usual, I'm using my very favorite cup, a piece of 19th century blue and white Canton. So I hope you're enjoying your own cuppa too for our tale for today. To Catch a Prince, the story of Alice Heine, Monaco's first American princess. 
Today, I'm going to take you to Monaco for a look at this storybook principality jutting out into the Mediterranean from the coast of France. And we'll be spending some time here in the 1890s, and we'll make a visit with the royal family. And they may not be exactly what you would have thought. But before we go all the way back, I want to begin our story much closer to our own time, on an April day to be exact, April 19th, 1956. There was a tremendous sense of excitement and glamour in the principality that day, and the excitement rippled really around the world. The dashing Prince Renier III of Monaco was marrying the American Hollywood beauty, Grace Kelly. After all the fever of publicity, the acres of newsprint, the fashion notes, and the jewel robberies, the great day approaches at last when Grace Kelly of Philadelphia, USA, will become the bride of Renier, Prince of Monaco. Renier and Grace had actually been officially married the day before in a civil ceremony in the throne room of the prince's palace. However, Monegasque tradition and royal law required two weddings, the civil union in the palace and the religious ceremony in Monaco's cathedral. As Grace Kelly, soon to become Princess Grace, walked down the aisle on the arm of her father, 30 million people across Europe watched along with every move live on television. She was stunningly attired in a gown made of 25 yards of silk taffeta, 100 yards of silk net, along with tulle and Brussels lace that was over 100 years old. Her veil included yards of tulle, and her cap was sewn with delicate seed pearls and a motif of orange blossoms. The gown, a gift from her studio, MGM, was designed by Hollywood costume designer Helen Rose and had taken six weeks to create with three dozen seamstresses. As Princess Grace descended the steps of the cathedral and faced the world's spotlight even more fully, it's of course curious to wonder just how much of what lay ahead of her she realized. Royal weddings and the royal marriages that follow are seldom quite as storybook as they appear on the day with cheering crowds and stunning gowns and endless flowers and smiling and waving couples. Speculation continued and grew as the years passed as to the state of the marriage of the prince and princess of Monaco, and those details are another story for another time. However, Grace Kelly became Monaco's princess at a time when the principality desperately needed some glamour, some international style, and some cash. Her father even paid a hefty $2 million dowry, which of course didn't hurt the royal coffers. The reason I wanted to do this show is that so many of the circumstances surrounding the marriage of Prince Renier and Princess Grace were just not new. Monaco had been there before, and Grace Kelly was not the first American-born princess of Monaco. The first American to take the title was a wealthy cosmopolitan society widow of the Belle Epoque living in Paris, and she became Monaco's princess nearly 70 years before Grace Kelly. Her name was Alice Heine. She was an American from Louisiana with a wealthy German banker for a father and a glamorous, exotic beauty with mixed Creole and European blood for a mother. She was born Jewish, and indeed she was related through her father to the famous, well-loved lyric poet and writer Heinrich Heine. Alice's marriage to her prince, 
Albert I, was completely opposite from the sensational spectacle with influences of MGM that Grace and Renier showed the world. Albert and Alice were married quietly in Paris at the end of October 1889 in a ceremony attended by very few family and few friends. Yet she made a triumphant arrival when she stepped from the royal train and entered Monaco's palace on a February day of 1890. She, like her future American royal sister Grace Kelly, Alice entered Monaco at a tremendously crucial point. Monaco at the end of the 19th century was fast becoming a destination for the newly moneyed Americans and the titled Europeans often looking to marry the newly moneyed Americans, and also as a result of the famous casino recently built on the bluff across the harbor from the Prince's Palace in an enclave named for Albert's father, Monte Carlo, the Mountain of Charles. The casino brought money and prosperity to Monaco, but not culture, and certainly not the kind of sophisticated culture with the finest in music, opera, dance, and literary society that Alice Heine intended to bring to the principality. Her interest was to transform and secure its notoriety not as a place where shady roues went to go to try to break the bank, as the old song goes, but as a place with serious artistic reputations. Alice Heine was a strikingly beautiful woman. Various descriptions of her tell us that she was a tall, statuesque blonde with striking brown eyes, and she enchanted admirers since she was young, vivacious, provocative, and exceptionally clever, as one writer noted. Other descriptions noted that she was gay, witty, wise, iconoclastic, and provocative. As one can certainly ascertain from the photographs and the portraits that exist of her, she clearly carried on her mother's exotic style, still blended with Germanic European looks. Alice was born in New Orleans in 1857. Her father was well-established in the Berlin financial world and had come to America with his brother to take advantage of the financial opportunities in the pre-Civil War cotton trade. The Heine family maintained a branch of the financial brokerage in Paris, and indeed, A&M Heine became one of the most powerful financial institutions in France in the middle of the 19th century. The American Civil War did little to bolster the Heine business interests stateside, and when Alice was a small child, her father Michel relocated the family to Paris. Despite Alice's deeply European-influenced life, including the several languages she spoke fluently, including French and German, and being brought up truly between several cultures, it's said that she cultivated a soft Southern accent and its accompanying famous Southern charm. Furthermore, she introduced Creole cooking into the dining rooms of the Parisian elite. She was not going to give up her étouffée that easily. Europeans were enchanted by her southernness, and for that, among all else, she attracted attention. She was a rarity. Alice's parents were close friends of Napoleon III and the Empress Eugenie, who ruled France's Grand Second d'Empire. In fact, it was to Alice's father that Louis Napoleon turned to help finance France's defense in the Franco-Prussian War, and it was her mother, Amélie, who helped rush the Empress Eugenie out of the Tuileries Palace in complete disguise during a dramatic escape to safety as the Prussian army overtook Paris. And both of Alice's parents helped the Empress make her final escape to the security of London. 
One of those whom Alice attracted as a fixture of the Second Empire society was the rather impoverished, yet aristocratically advantageous, seventh Duc de Richelieu. A marriage to a titled French aristocrat, regardless of how much he could provide, was the end game. Alice herself had plenty of money, but to marry into the French nobility and to become a duchesse was to promote her further up on the social ladder along with her family. And of course, it required that she convert to Catholicism in order to finalize the match. Her marriage was short-lived, but allowed her to produce two children with the Duke before he died unexpectedly on a trip to Athens in 1880. Alice now found herself 22 years old, a widow with two children. Her wealth and connections now through both her father's business and her husband's social status allowed her to begin a new life in the world of the Paris salons in the exclusive enclave of the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, one of the oldest and most exclusive quarters of Paris. During the early years of the Belle Époque in the 1880s, Salons were the focal point of the upper crust of the societal fabric. Loosely begun in the Italian courts during the Renaissance, the Salon reached a glittering high point during the Belle Epoque of Paris. Women, married or not, designated themselves hostesses and entertained those of their choosing in their grand drawing rooms of the mansions of the Faubourg Saint-Germain and the Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Now, you couldn't just show up. You had to be invited into these exclusive circles that usually included a dinner at which, even if you were invited, it was required that you show off your wit, your intelligence, and your sense of worldly pursuits. Or you weren't invited back, and you might as well just slink off to the countryside. There was no free lunch in this town. The salons were the very gathering places where writers, artists, and musicians of the periods hoped to find patrons and to mix with the aristocratic haute monde. One of the most notable of these young, eager writers was, of course, Marcel Proust, who carefully and in exceptional detail began to keep notes on his interactions in the grand Paris salons and used them to create his masterwork, A la recherche de temps perdu. Alice Heine, the widowed Duchesse de Richelieu, had no intention of fading into the shadows of the Faubourg. She became one of the most noted of the society hostesses, and her salon attracted many writers, including the great short story writer Guy de Maupassant, with whom she developed a close friendship. And astonishingly, it was indeed the young Marcel Proust who was a guest in her salon, and with his impressions and memories of her, some readers feel that he created the character of the Princesse de Luxembourg in his great novel. Alice had grown up watching her father's skilled diplomacy and courting of clients and his business acumen and ability to cultivate fruitful relationships on all levels became natural for her. That, along with her deep love of the arts, particularly music and opera, were crucial qualities that she was to eventually bring as part of her influence to Monaco. Alice had met Albert I, son of the ruling Prince Charles III of Monaco, when they were both in Madeira in 1879. There seemed to be an attraction, and she loved his sense of adventure and of travel. For Albert, Alice was unlike any woman he had known before. 
She was a mix of so many qualities, a strong will, a strong mind, and a beauty he hadn't seen in the women floating around those royal circles. Albert, while waiting for the end of his father's life and to become prince than himself, was passionate about oceanographic science and made regular sea voyages exploring the ocean's depths and the life found there. With increasing regularity, he would pay visits to the Parisian home of Alice, the widowed Duchesse de Richelieu, on his return from his trips. Albert and Alice became lovers. However, when they met, Albert was married. Another complicating factor. He had married a Scottish noblewoman, Lady Mary Victoria Hamilton, in an arranged marriage by his grandmother. He produced an heir to the throne, Louis, with whom he was never close, and who spent much of his time with his mother. Lady Hamilton hated the Mediterranean climate and the entire life in Monaco, and while Albert was away on an extended maneuver, she packed up and left Monaco forever. The marriage between Albert and Lady Hamilton ended in divorce and was annulled by the church in 1880, yet provisions left their son Louis as the legitimate heir to the throne of Monaco. The path still wasn't clear for the relationship between Albert and Alice to proceed, at least publicly, and proceed towards marriage, which is what Albert wanted. His father, ailing but still prince, stood firmly in the way. Alice was Jewish in his eyes despite her conversion to marry the Duke, and she was a single woman entertaining artists and not quiet about it in her Paris salon. However, one can't always control love from the grave. So after Charles died in September of 1889, Albert and Alice married. He now Prince of Monaco, and she became his princess in that quiet ceremony just a few weeks after his father's death. By now it's time for a short break, and I really hate to leave the story at this point. There is so much more to come, but I do have to top up my tea here. And when we come back, I'm going to share a little bit of the history of this royal family. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
On one of my bookshelves, I have a small white porcelain dish edged in gold and showing the armorial crest of Monaco in the center that caught my eye, and I bought it a number of years ago while spending some time in Monaco. The central image of the crest shows two monks with arms raised in defiant combat. Indeed, this curious image reflects the very beginning of Monaco as we know it over 700 years ago. Some writers have said that pretty much the story of Monaco began with a monk and a rock. The rock, still known as the Rock of Monaco, is a dramatic monolith rising high and jutting out over the Mediterranean on which the first fortress was built to protect the area. It is the same rock where we find the palace of today's Prince of Monaco, and the same one in which Albert and Renier lived as well, and the palace was built on the original fortress foundations. The royal line of Monaco is the story of the Grimaldi family, powerful mariners from nearby Genoa at the end of the 13th century. At the time, the fortress on the Great Rock of Monaco was held by an opposing faction, supporters of the Holy Roman Empire. With an eye to capturing the fortress and taking control of the rock and the region, François Grimaldi, dressed as a monk, infiltrated the fortress and seized control with his forces. Hence, the Grimaldis became the ancestral family of Monaco. Ownership battles with Italy and France, which are quite literally in Monaco's backyard, fluctuated over the ensuing centuries, but Louis-Napoleon, Palace's father's great friend granted Monaco independence when the Côte d'Azur region was returned to France from Italian control in the mid-19th century. Alice arrived in Monaco as princess with her prince on February 9, 1890. And, by the way, porters had to contend with her 27 trunks of dresses and gowns and accessories and shoes and jewelry. The Monaco that Alice stepped into was indeed a prosperous principality, but that had not been so in the recent past, and it was thanks to another strong-willed, business-focused woman, and this was the Princess Caroline, Albert's grandmother, that brought Monaco back from near bankruptcy. Monaco had long relied on tax revenue from the neighboring districts of Monton and Roquebrune. However, Declaring their independence from Monaco in 1848, this put the principality at a serious disadvantage for loss of income and revenue. Well, one of the answers to this was to transform Monaco, perched on its rock and the surrounding harbor, into a health spa, which was the rage in mid-century and which was flourishing in Germany with its many baths and spas drawing the wealthy from all over Europe. The idea was to take a cure by lolling about in a hot bath with other treatments, and then, when you were restored to vigor, well, go out and find some entertainment, which usually was only a few feet away from your bath, and that usually meant fine dining, or more often, flat-out gambling. Princess Caroline, Albert I's grandmother, had some marketing ideas of her own when she arrived in Monaco in 1841. And by the way, she'd had a career as a stage actress before taking the role of Princess Consort. Another surprise that Grace Kelly was again not the first former actress to occupy the Prince's Palace. Caroline was deeply in favor of establishing a casino in Monaco to shore up the coffers. 
but Monaco itself needed some shoring up as well. Roads needed repaired, or in fact, to be built at all so that crowds could get there from nearby Nice. Hotels and restaurants that would handle the kind of visitor interested in the spa holiday and some serious gambling also had to be established. Caroline was all too familiar with the German money-making model of gambling spas and insisted on recruiting François Blanc, a French entrepreneur who had created the famed Bad Homburg Casino. Reticent at first to attempt such a thing on the top of this Mediterranean rock, the charms of Princess Caroline, I mean cash here, lured him to make an attempt. Blanc took over in 1863 and set to work setting up a whole new company to manage the enterprise that even had a bishop and a cardinal who ended up as a future pope as investors. The new casino took shape across the harbor from the prince's palace and was renamed and transformed, as I mentioned earlier, into the Gambling Society CNBC Social District, still known as Monte Carlo. As part of Blanc's genius and likely Caroline's cash, one of the most important steps in this transformation was the hiring in 1878 of Charles Garnier, the Parisian architect fresh from his extraordinary achievement in Belle Epoque excess, the construction of Paris's great new opera house, sitting proudly at the head of the Haussmann-designed Avenue de l'Opéra. The Salle Garnier as part of the casino complex opened in 1879 with a performance of Sarah Bernhardt portraying a nymph. Traveling companies offered performances of concerts, some theater, and opera throughout the next decade, but the theater failed to offer much more than just a diversion to the gambling visitors. Crowds had been flooding to the south of France in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War throughout the rest of the 1870s and the decade that followed. But as far as Alice Heine was concerned, well, they weren't quite the right sort. Gamblers attracted a challenging mix of people. The good news was that they usually had pockets full of cash, or not, and they could patronize expensive boutiques, but they were often followed by some of the most famous, bejeweled, taffeta-gowned, grand courtesans who were in it for the business, too. Alice wanted to shake things up and, most importantly, bring a cultured and sophisticated atmosphere to the gambling that, despite its financial contributions, she disliked. Let's remember that those days as a grand hostess of the Faubourg Salon served her well, because soon after installing herself in the palace, she began issuing invitations to her artistic friends to spend time down on the Riviera with her in her new role as princess. One of the first to roll up, and one that, by the way, was very good for publicity, was Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales. Albert Edward, known as Bertie, Queen Victoria's son, and the future Edward VII, had just way too much time on his hands. And this was good if you needed a PR push, since he would be likely to accept your invitation, and the press loved to follow him and treat him as a trendsetter of fine dining and fine living. This is because he really didn't have much else to do. Alice brought more of her friends, some of the great women of the theater, Sarah Bernhardt, of course, the great Italian actress Eleonora Duza, and speaking of theatrical women, there was the English Lily Langtree, who was one of the Prince of Wales' great paramours, 
but that had long since ended, and she had a villain nearby, so it was easy for her to join the party. Alice wanted very much to encourage other royalty to descend and spend time on the rock. Princes and kings of Belgium, Nepal, and Russia all happily paid her calls, but the one she really wanted was Queen Victoria herself. She tried, through her relationship with Bertie, to entice the queen to Monaco. However, the queen, it seems, felt the whole experience was a den of gambling and iniquity, and she chose to stay away. The closest she got was Simier, which was a resort area in the hills above Nice, and where she often spent time away from the drizzle of England. Alice, and, and this I think shows us a little bit of who she really was, wrote to the queen directly to ask for an audience, and subsequently managed an invitation to come to the queen for tea at Simier, and she went. However, there's no real record of how the visit went, except it seems it was perfunctory and short. She did have the chance to meet the Princess of Wales and their children, and according to Anne Edwards in her book The Grimaldis of Monaco, Alice apparently noted that one of their daughters, Maud, Maud's hair was a garish blonde, and they were seedily dressed. Oh dear. Alice loved the opera, and one of her first goals was to turn the old Salle into a world-class opera house. That, if nothing else, should draw, you know, the right set. Alice once again relied on her financial expertise and the power of her father, who renegotiated the original contract for the casino, which, in this new arrangement, allowed for contributions for charitable causes, which she felt were crucial in developing her PR turnaround of Monaco. This new deal also allowed funds for a remodeling of the theater and, most importantly, a budget to pursue a world-class season of opera with world-class singers. The new Monte Carlo Opera, supported by Alice, opened in 1892 in the Jewel Box Theatre with only just over 500 seats, originally designed by Charles Garnier and remodeled by Henri Schmidt specifically for productions of opera. Alice also oversaw the engagement of the impresario intended to bring the finest talent and with it the finest audience following them to Monte Carlo. She engaged Raoul Gunzborg, who in turn hired Isidore de Lara. Largely forgotten today, de Lara was a composer of classical songs and opera, and he had gained a certain notoriety among the wealthy who were willing to patronize his work. Gunzborg invited de Lara to Monaco with an extensive multi-year contract to present his work at the opera. When Alice met de Lara, she found him physically unappealing with unimpressive height. One of his greatest qualities, it seems, was his tremendous self-confidence, and as we all know, that can compensate for any range of physical imperfections and render someone irresistible when otherwise they're unremarkable. Such appears to be the case with Isidore de Lara, and rumors began to circulate that Alice and de Lara were, you know, involved. Albert, in all of this, was often and regularly away from the palace and away from Monaco. His true passion seemed to be the sea and the study of oceanographic science. He was discovering a new love that wasn't Alice. It was paleontology. 
Often his expeditions would result in embedded fossils in rocks and stones being hauled back and stored in the once dungeons of the palace for further study and examination. In truth, it seems clear the marriage was drifting. Whether the pressures of royal life, the difference in passions of Albert and Alice, he for the sea, she for the building up of an artistic community, talk circulated that each had lovers other than each other. Albert supposedly was regularly in the private company of the famous Caroline Otero, La Belle Otero, a Spanish stage actress, dancer, and one of the most famous courtesans of the 1880s and 1890s, and whom reportedly Alice, at one point, had banned from Monaco. The relationship between Alice and Albert ended, although it clearly was ending much before. But it ended with a dramatic incident on a spring night in 1902 as Alice and Albert were together attending a performance at the opera. The event is recounted several different ways, but it seems that as Alice was ascending the staircase with Albert on her arm, Delara approached them and spoke quietly to Alice. Albert, losing all emotional control, slapped Alice across the face, leaving her and the audience around them stunned. It seems Albert had suspected his wife of infidelity, but didn't realize it was Delara. Something in their interaction indicated, to him at least, that it was. Albert immediately left the theater, and Alice, ever regal, head held high, continued up the staircase. Alice pulled herself and some possessions together and left the palace and Monaco forever just a few days later. Shortly afterward, by May, she was established in London, living in Claridge's Hotel with Delara. Now that her friend Bertie was king, she deepened her friendship with Queen Alexandra and returned to her life as a salon hostess that had propelled her just to the top of the Parisian society so many years before. She entertained the brightest stars of the London scene, including, among others, Rudyard Kipling and Winston Churchill. During the years of World War I, she turned her focus to helping the war effort and turned her country house into a military hospital to help the wounded. Albert and Alice never divorced, but remained officially separated. Albert saw the realization of his dream, which was to build the Oceanographic Institute and Museum in Monaco, and it remains one of the most stunning attractions in Monaco to this day. He died in 1922, with his emotionally distant son Louis taking the title of Prince of Monaco. Albert I was the great-grandfather of Regnier III. Alice died in 1925 in Paris. She never remarried, and she remained the Dowager Princess of Monaco. On March 3, 1981, Princess Grace was attending a music recital in London when she had the opportunity to meet another young woman soon to be princess, who had just become engaged and whose life, familiar to us all, was to include infidelity, loneliness, and tragedy. It seems that after meeting and greeting each other, Princess Grace and the then Lady Diana were able to separate a bit from the crowd and engage in a bit more private conversation. Once alone, 
Diana reportedly burst into tears, confiding in Grace that she was beginning to realize just what royal life was going to be like. Grace responded by taking Diana in her arms to comfort her and in an ironic attempt to lighten the moment, advised, Don't worry, my dear. You'll see it only gets worse. I've had the opportunity to spend some time in Monaco several times, including one in which I was able to pay a visit to the palace itself and to wander a bit in the halls and the rooms known to both Alice and Grace. Coming back outside that particular afternoon, I caught a breath of the fresh air and walked over to a small grove of trees on one side of the palace. I turned and I looked back at the lengthening shadows across the facade crossing that famous balcony on which Grace and her prince so often appeared. Some look back at Alice's life and consider her legacy with ambivalence. But I'm not so sure about that. I thought about Alice's life and what she tried to accomplish and how she must have charmed and fascinated so many that she met with, with her sophisticated cosmopolitan sense and that still evident wisp of her American roots. Like all of the princesses we've discussed, myths and misrepresentations grew up around Alice too. One of the most prevalent is that she launched the Ballet Russe. While her love of performance was surely in evidence, Diaghilev and his troupe that took Monaco by storm, that all happened long after she had left. The events and the moments of Alice's life are fairly sparsely written, and given her role and her time, she had no real opportunity to speak for herself. And so again, like all of the princesses we've discussed, there will always be a little mystery in the air. There is, however, a street to be found today in the Principality, the Avenue Princess Alice, which at least, in some way, acknowledges her legacy. As I wandered over to the edge of the trees, I remembered my first day of university in Paris, when the newspapers were covered early that September morning of 1982 with the breaking news of the sudden death of Princess Grace. I thought of both princesses and how they brought their vision, style, and individuality to roles that can only have been challenging at the very least. With all that in my head, I turned back to the palace, leaning against one of the trees, and I looked slowly down from that great and ancient rock over the harbor and far out to the sea. Thank you so much for joining me today for To Catch a Prince, the story of Alice Heine, Monaco's first American princess. I invite you to become a patron of the show. It's through your support that I'm able to research and create the show. And you'll receive exclusive content, interviews, recorded material just for patrons, and special segments, including the Gilded Gentleman True Crime Club. Please visit patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. And if you've enjoyed today's tale, subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and let me know any ideas and shows that you'd like to hear. Please send me a note at carl at thegildedgentleman.com. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. 
Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available.